0: In the healthcare system, we're letting people do things to our bodies and to our minds that we have no idea whether it's the best thing to do or whether they're the best person to do that thing. And just providing some content to a consumer out of context is not helpful. And I'll say then on the other side of that, in the context of primary care is kind of vitally important helping them help guide decision-making too because they are the person that is taking care of the, the mind and the body and the spirit of that of that patient, guiding them in a, in a way that breeds confidence, familiarity, is empirical, those are all things that are helpful because it also helps people teach how they can consume healthcare in a more responsible fashion. <laughs>
1: Welcome to the Solving Healthcare Podcast. My name is Mike Andrade. For this podcast, we're deviating slightly from our normal format. This is a two-part series, and it's an interview with Shane Wolverton. Shane is the Senior Vice President of Corporate Development for Quantros Health. Now, you might be thinking that simply means sales guy. However, Shane is a super smart wealth of information. This episode today is a dis- discussion of Quantros Health, what their company does for the employer community, and also what they do for the healthcare community. You'll hear Shane reference a neighborhood several times during our discussion. Please take note that the neighborhood he references is an innovation that will be available in many marketplaces in 2020. This innovation will allow plan sponsors to guide their covered employees, spouses, and children to the highest quality physicians for bundled pricing you'll definitely want to listen to both of these interviews as this one discusses how Quantros helps employers and providers with information regarding cost, quality, compliance and patient safety. Mr. Wolverton's Neighborhood will cover how they're using data and their proximity with the provider community to deliver value to patients, plan sponsors and providers. So Shane, welcome to the show. Talk to me about some of some of the organizations that you work with.
0: Sure, so We so I work with organizations that build centers of excellence and and the the approach is referrals to providers, in this case physicians, that are highly reliable at avoiding adverse events. And in some cases they're bundled rates. So bundled rate, so different definitions, this is a bundled rate which de risks the plan sponsor. So the bundle includes The provider takes all the risk on the bundle. So they place the stop loss. We also work with transparency companies that are platforms that consumers are using to shop for healthcare.
1: I was just going to say give give an example of a company because that could be. Oh,
0: um, Healthcare, Healthcare Blue Book is a transparency company. Bridge Health is the centers of excellence company that we work with. I mentioned Imagine Health. Mm-hmm. So they're, in, they're an employer-sponsored narrow network where quality is a primary differentiator and they still are out there. They were bought by Elap and Elap is a reference-based pricing company. That's, that's where they've been working. Mm-hmm. So the combination of those two is the narrow network allows you to have a choice that's based on quality and price that's more aggressive than um, usually a large carrier's network. And then the RBP, to the extent that you're in front of the claim, allows you to negotiate a better price and steer towards a better provider. Both of those organizations use our content. So quality is kind of top of mind. I work with TPAs. So Continental Benefits set up a program called Top Care. It was kind of predicated upon mandatory second opinions. So hard stop, kind of disease management. Concierge approach and then making referrals to only providers that are in the top decile nationally. Uh, We also work with a company called Sapphire Digital. They have a program called Medical Expert Guides. So it's a concierge program that somebody calls up and then they're directed to top quality providers that are also offering a more optimal price within the carrier network. And they're working with state entities. Municipalities, school districts, um, things like that. They also work with some large carriers and trying to roll that program out. I actually, work with a large carrier, Primera, in Seattle, Washington, and they are they're actually using our quality information to begin to think about how they can create more optimal quality and cost intersections, both inside and outside of the state of Washington. And they're actually socializing this across the Blue Cross Association. So that they can think about this more broadly for national clients. So I've worked historically with Highmark in the Pittsburgh market as another as an example of another large carrier, where for many years uh, UPMC, the competing health plan, had has been painted as the highest quality, you know, network or but, you know IDN, basically. And yeah. and what we're able to demonstrate was that wasn't the case. It actually HiMark had Providers in their network they're, uh, were of the same caliber as UPMCs, in, in many instances, far lower cost to the plan yeah.
1: sponsor. I was going to ask by whose paintbrush was... Uh... <laughs> exactly, yes. And so that
0: becomes that becomes the the issue is like, who's painting that picture? So I would say that um, Herbert Simon is a Nobel laureate, and, and, uh, and he said, a wealth of information creates a poverty of attention. Mm-hmm. And so I think what we have as consumers is we have a wealth of information, but we, we actually don't know what to do with it. Um, and that's why I think consumerism is, is not the way to go. It's actually, you've got to take the next step with those consumers. And I think that that's where we need to go, frankly.
1: Could you tell us a little bit about Quantros and what, prob- what problem you specifically try to solve?
0: Sure. Quantros as a company has three different solution sets. The first one is around safety event, capture, and reporting. So think about somebody that's in a, in a healthcare environment and they have a fall or they have a, a problem,
2: okay.
0: like an adverse drug reaction. We actually have very sophisticated applications that allow providers to understand what happened, to remediate that, to make sure that it doesn't happen again, to provide a safer environment for the care of of people.
1: Okay. So when you say somebody falls, that's meaning like they're in the hospital and they fall, not that the fall is the reason for them to be in the hospital. Is that correct?
0: Correct. I'm saying that they're in the facility for treatment and then they fall. For example, they're on strong pain medications and they they get up to go to the bathroom and they fall.
1: Yeah, no, understood. It's just based yeah. on the way it was stated yes. it it wasn't cl- oh, I sorry. wanted yeah, to make the, the clarification yeah. so
0: yeah so yeah the fall is not the reason for the encounter but the fall happens during the encounter right. the second thing that we do is compliance so cms is required that hospitals submit what's called core measures or process indicators to the federal government as part of their participation in cms's payment for medicare and medicaid so we provide the applications that Help the providers do that efficiently. The third thing that we do is we measure the cost and quality of healthcare across providers using various data sets. And that third that third line of business is a business that they acquired from me and my two partners. Um, that was known as Comparion Medical Analytics, and so um, so we've been analyzing cost and quality of providers for 30 years actually started as hard copy reports in the early nineties.
2: Wow. With with primarily by providers.
0: Yeah. No, with, (laughs) with overheads that we actually had to create and print ourselves. So yeah, so that's, so when you talk about getting the OLD, like I am, like I'm your man. Yeah. yeah. And then, um, and then bringing that, forward to where we we actually created clinically adjusted episodes of care using um, some third-party applications, benchmarking, and all that was directed primarily to providers to help them improve quality, reduce costs, you know, negotiate managed care contracts. Then about seven or eight years ago, we decided that a large portion of the stakeholders in healthcare were, were were uninformed about how much variation there was Mm -hmm. in cost and quality. And so kind of foundationally, the measurement of cost and quality involves the use of clinical adjustment to explain variation in costs that are unrelated to differences in the severity, intensity, and complexity of patients. So you have to recognize that not all patients are the same. You have to account for that if you want to make precise comparisons. And then on the quality side, it's risk adjustment, which is actually measuring the propensity that a patient has for an adverse event based on the information on their discharge record. So So, when we, when we, when we process that data, we're actually literally looking at um, patient level detail to build a picture of the risk of that patient and their propensity to consume resources.
1: Okay. Can you give an example of, of where the two differences uh, and so just give an example of, of uh, the variance sure variability.
0: So I'll give an example. So let's say I looked at the Seattle market, for example, and I'm looking at major bowel procedures. So this is a procedure, a bowel resection that's usually performed in connection with the diagnosis of colon cancer, or it can be. It can be diverticulitis.
2: Okay.
0: So I can actually measure individual physicians for their avoidance of risk-adjusted mortality, risk-adjusted complications of care, risk-adjusted unanticipated readmissions, and then a set of indicators called um, patient safety indicators that were developed by Stanford under grant research work with the Agency for Health Research and Quality, and then another set of indicators called inpatient quality indicators. So all total, this could be upwards of, let's say, 15 different indicators of performance where I risk adjust that information and then I standardize it using statistics. And so the top performing general surgeon in the Seattle MSA is in the 99th percentile, meaning that he's more reliable than all but 1% of general surgeons nationally. And the lowest reli- or the least reliable physician is in the 6th percentile, meaning that 90 percent or 94.7% rather of all the providers nationally that were primary surgeons for for major bowel procedures were statistically more reliable than that physician was. And then if I'm a consumer in Seattle, Washington, I have no line of sight to literally that much variability in my marketplace for Either having somebody that can guide me towards an optimal outcome, or somebody that may not be able to for a host of reasons.
1: Yeah, and you're you're exactly right because the current distribution model is: I go to a network directory and find a doctor, or I ask my doctor that may or may not have any insight into quality. They just may know that surgeon because they're a friend, or they heard they do a good job, or something like that. Is that is that fair? Right.
0: Absolutely. So what happens is. You know, we came out of residency together. We, you know, we make referrals to physicians. We get the patients back, which is important. But I I will tell you, in working with providers for many years, rarely will a primary care physician have any information on the outcomes of a specialist, Mm -hmm. much less surgical procedures. As a matter of fact, most primary care physicians no longer have privileges at hospitals because hospitalists are the ones that are admitting patients, not not primary care physicians and internists. Just you just don't like that information is not circulated. So like if I want to know if you were a surgeon, if you were a general surgeon, I would have no earthly idea on what your risk adjusted mortality rate was. Like what is your risk adjusted complications rate? What are your readmissions? They have like no line of sight to that whatsoever. And so referrals are made not based on empirical Information they're based on other criteria. Or if I'm a, if I don't need a referral and I'm a patient, I'm self-selecting based on a Google review or a Yelp Mm -hmm. review or a a roster that's fairly easy for me to navigate. Or talk to a friend.
1: Agreed. It's the Zagat rating which has no bearing on exactly whatsoever. Totally. Were they nice? And did they? Yep. Yeah, that's it. I I agree totally. And so did they
0: smile? Yeah, they did. Okay. Well, they're friendly. <laughs> that's so important like i I, w- I don't want my doctor to speak to me uh, so i have very different views about healthcare than like my parents my parents are like oh they spent so much time and they were so friendly and i'm like y'all they're a hack like run away <laughs>
1: <laughs> and i can prove it
0: <laughs> yes i've got the data
1: all right so uh, uh, just to recap you you guys started out focusing on three areas safety clinical efficiency and what was the third thing?
0: Um, I would say well I would say safety, compliance, regulatory compliance, right. and, then, and then and then assessment of quality and utilization or efficiency and quality. So those would be kind of the three buckets.
1: Okay, and so Quantros recognized that there's this really smart company that, that was uh, that you were fold, you were folded into as a part of Quantros. Correct and then recognized about 8 years ago that there's an opportunity to pull in a huge constituent in the healthcare uh, healthcare delivery system that is totally unaware of how and why they should be looking at quality is that is that a fair statement
0: it is and i would say so the 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 interest and realization of these non-provider stakeholders mm-hmm. occurred before we sold to Quantros. so we sold to quantros in 2016 but our work with employers and advisors and others started before then. And I will mention this because of, because of all the work that we've done with providers and recognize that, that I will suggest to you that in many respects, they apply their best efforts to continually improve and to drive improvement. Right. Um, So our, our working with these non-provider stakeholders is in no way kind of impugning guilt or, Inadequacy on the part of the providers. That simply is recognizing that that with healthcare inflation being untenable, with HDHPs basically making most people self-insured, we can't wait for the healthcare providers to improve. To use your term, to raise their ERA or to you know to the rising tide raises all boats. And even if you did, the variation is still not being reduced. Like I see that clearly. So what's happening is they're largely fee for service. And we're saying we're moving towards value-based care. And I'm telling you as an insider, like we are not close. Like the federal government, the largest payer in the land is paying pretty much fee for service. So you can't. You can't kind of like judge how that door is going to swing shut, you know, very easily if you're a physician that's largely geared towards, you know, fee for service, which is a production type of reimbursement model. It's very complicated. And so you, we, have the, our, we have our ideas about which providers may be good or bad. Um, we have brands that are placed before us that have significant equity, brand equity that we believe are optimal providers, and yet what Jack Winberg says and what I know to be true is even if you found a hospital who in aggregate performed really well, when you break it down and looked at individual providers within that hospital or within that setting, you would have a dispersion of practice patterns that ranges in a very similar fashion to what I just conveyed to you about Mm -hmm. Seattle, Washington.
1: No, no, and I think that springboards into getting specific about in the healthcare space. So now it's not just working with a hospital or a physician or a physician practice, mm-hmm. but within the broader sense of working with employers, health plan sponsors, and, and third-party administrators. How does Qantas fit into all of that? And what is it that you seek to do with the other constituents?
0: So we're a convener. Mm-hmm. From the standpoint that we believe that if you look at what Jack Winberg said, which is, so we don't have a quality agenda that provides information or focusing on the quality of decision making. So what we're doing in the concept of a, of a medical neighborhood is we're saying, you know what? Even if I provided the information to a consumer, the, the presumption of literacy in analytics and understanding healthcare quality is a, is a heavy lift. Why not have them talk to somebody that's knowledgeable mm-hmm. and compassionate and empathetic who is informed and knows what to do with this information and how to convey it to a consumer that may be going through a crisis or have a challenging decision to make with which they have no information. So we're connecting the consumer to this notion that you can actually force a convergence of price and quality together, even though there isn't one that occurs naturally. The second thing is we can reward providers that are actually delivering exemplary care through various mechanisms. So one of those would be for those providers that are, that are doing appropriate, using appropriate modalities and they're avoiding adverse events, We're going to deliver patients to them that, by paying them in full, they no longer have an AR problem, and they no longer have a collections problem. One of the things that people are largely unaware of is the providers are collecting paltry amounts of money on their contracted rates because the cost has been shifted to consumers that can't afford to pay the healthcare bills. Mm -hmm. So they're on installment plans. They're on credit cards you know, at 22% interest. We can actually pay the provider fully up front so they get paid everything. We can actually help the consumer make a better choice if the plan sponsor says, if you go to high-quality providers that have agreed to a price that, that's in a neighborhood and it's connected with primary care, we're going to help you with that bill, whether we subsidize it you know you're out of pockets your co and deductibles fully or partially we're going to make it less to you to make a good decision if you want to if you don't want to if you want to go to that provider that you are already predisposed to then you're happy to but we're not going to help subsidize that so we're going to actually help convene the plan sponsor the provider the consumer and use the quality information to the benefit of all parties as the primary differentiator between who can, who's participating in, let's say, in a neighborhood concept or not. Apostrophe is using the data in the exact same way. They're saying, you know what, we only want to get you connected with providers that are top quality and we want to negotiate with them on a fair rate. Those are the, like their mechanism is wonderful their brand is amazing mm-hmm. like their the customer experience the patient experience is amazing that has opportunity to scale and that's what we're deeply committed to because at the end of the day what i see and and i've got anecdote after anecdote of people that have that reach out to me in crisis because they are a loved one needs a surgical procedure and they don't know who to turn to. And they know, you know, call the lovable dork, Shane, <laughs> he'll help you, you know, and, um, and he can be mildly entertaining at the same time. And so the, the sigh of relief that somebody gets when they know, okay, like I'm not making a, a poor decision can be, can relieve anxiety and get people to where they need to get to, to receive the optimal value that um, they need to. And in consumerism, so, and I'm sure you're familiar with the term consumerism in healthcare is the belief that if I just give a consumer the data, they're going to make the right decision. And I'm like, how?
1: Yeah, I I would agree. I mean, there's, there's just not enough. There's not enough data in an easily digestible form that a normal consumer can, can digest and make an informed decision. It's still, boy, yes. I don't know what to do. I've got a high deductible. I'm going to ask my doctor. He's going to tell me to go down the hall.
0: Exactly. And, and when I talk about providers, I'm not faulting the providers. The healthcare system is delivering exactly what it was created to deliver, yeah. which is, as consumers, we want access. I want to be able to go anywhere I want to go, and I want to be able to access Uh, specialty care. And if I'm willing to stroke the check, I want to be able to get access to that care. So if I have a BMI of 50 and I want spine surgery in this country, you can get it. Now it'll fail, but what we don't understand and what we don't appreciate is a pain tolerance of zero is not really acceptable. Like you, you know, as you get older, there are going to be things that don't work as well. And you may have some things that you need to manage and so I think of us as a convener so the precision of our math is important and it's important because Mm. it's when you're measuring quality and you're using the term reliability it becomes very important to these stakeholders that we say if you go to this provider you have a greater probability of a good outcome. So there's a fiduciary responsibility in in the kind of the algorithmic and the aggregation work that we do to present this information on providers.
1: So I want to be clear in that when we talked about aligning incentives, about essentially saying using data in a consumer experience, but not necessarily giving it to the consumer, giving it to somebody that can help them. So whether they're in in that state of panic or whatever the case may be they're going to have an advocate on their team that says, hey, you know, if you go to Dr. Smith versus Dr. John, they have better outcomes. And by the way, if you go that way, that event will be either free or reduced cost or, or right. some incentive to where there's a financial alignment to say, okay, if you as the employee or family member choose this path, you're helping the plan and you're helping yourself as, as well. I also just want to be clear that you guys are not a third party administrator. Correct. correct? Okay. And just, I wanted to be clear on that. And so your role is to really help the third party administrators as well as employers that choose to go down this path to essentially you're the arbiter of quality saying, okay, we have the algorithms in place. We have the data funnels. Here's the, magnitude of the data that we receive. And oh, by the way, since we're also using this to help the provider community, we have reliable data that's that is reliable. It's fill in the blank for me. Um,
0: Comprehensive. In other words, it covers as much it covers as much performance as we could possibly measure to to give us the best chance. And I would say, in addition to that, we're actually going one step further saying, you know what? the model that apostrophe uses is actually a really good model because they actually reach out to the consumer. Mm -hmm. And so we're taking that next step and saying, you know what, we're going to take the quality and we're going to act on it to build a neighborhood or to build a neighborhood. And then we're not going to do what a lot of people do, which is say, just make everything transparent. We're going to say, it's not really a transparency problem. It's a, it's a lack of understanding. It's, I'll use the word literacy, the way that healthcare functions is perverse relative to other things that are common in our lives. You know, I'll give you an example. Like I can walk into Walmart and I can look at a row of television sets and within a relatively short period of time, understand the differences in price and quality of those televisions. And then I can make a decision about which one of those I want, what's most important to me. Okay. In the healthcare system, we're letting people do things to our bodies and to our minds that we have no idea whether it's the best thing to do or whether they're the best person to do that thing. And just providing some content to a consumer out of context is not helpful. And I'll say then on the other side of that, if in the context of primary care is kind of vitally important helping them help guide decision-making too, because they are the person that is taking care of the the mind and the body and the spirit of that, of that patient, guiding them in a, in a way that breeds confidence, familiarity is empirical. Those are all things that are helpful because it also helps people teach how they can consume healthcare in a more responsible fashion. And then I think the plan sponsors also, I'm going to suggest that many of them lack courage to do things that they know make sense for their employees but they're unwilling to do it because they may get some angry phone calls or have other problems you know that arise from that because they're unwilling to say guys you know we've got to spend our resources more wisely and we've got a way to do that to where we know we can get greater value and you guys can get greater outcomes if we do it in this manner.
1: And yeah, I think we're at the point
0: where some people are entertaining more options.
1: I, I would agree. I, I would also say it's a perception that if you walk away from the large insurance companies, you're going to sacrifice discounts, for lack of a better word, and potentially lose a discount advantage. Where I'm, I'm sure you would respond in some way, shape, or form of saying, well, if you can. Eliminate care that should have never happened. What what's your discount on that, right? Um, right, exactly. Yep. If, if you can steer folks to better outcomes, uh, and it's going to be a comparable rate, or, or maybe even mm-hmm. lower. I don't know what, right. what what your data would suggest on that, but that
0: would be it. Would be it can be lower. You're exactly right. And here's the other point: if if you like your large ASO relationship, you can keep it. You know why? Because we can actually find value in those in that large ASO relationship in such a way that you actually can can stay with them and drive value in that relationship longer. Because some people prefer small TPAs. Like I, I love apostrophe. I think what Cheryl and her team is doing is amazing, high energy. Mm -hmm. That flavor is not for everybody. You know, if I'm a large multi-state employer. You know, I may want the stability of somebody, you know, uh, as you know, from a single carrier. The concepts that work in healthcare. if you go back to what Jack Winberg was, you got to have an agenda that focuses on patients and their decision making. You have to reward exemplary care. That can be done irrespective of who you're with. So if you said, you know what, I love the relationship, they're responsive to me, they meet my needs, fine you can continue to optimize those things within that relationship. And I think that's one of the things that creating more friction, like one of the things I've noticed in the advisory community and across the consultants and others is kind of this kind of debate that's being had around the different mechanisms by which things ought to be done and kind of this sharp disagreement where I'm going like, It is a really big marketplace, and there are a multitude of solutions that can work for many stakeholders, but there could be a blend of solutions that work as well that could be very powerful, and it's so complicated that you can't just be kind of use blunt force. I think something that's elegant, something that doesn't ruffle different stakeholders is a far better solution than saying, you know what, we're just going to thumb our nose at you and we're going to come at you. and and be disruptive. I would argue that that being disruptive is actually potentially creating more anxiety and more angst across the stakeholders when you could very quietly, very elegantly do something that's sensitive to both price and quality, and then also the empathy and compassion needed for the patient, Mm -hmm. and you could do it in such Mm -hmm. a way that it would not be obtrusive, and everybody feels like they have an opportunity to benefit from the relationship.
1: Now, are you referring to certain reimbursement methodologies that basically say, this is what we're paying you, and if you don't like it, sue us?
0: Yeah, so I would say, so a a couple of things. One is, so with with respect to kind of that type of, let's say, reference-based pricing where you Mm -hmm. don't hold a contract, and then, so it's not a particularly paternal or maternal kind of feeling on the part of the employee, (laughs) I suspect. I've never been in that situation, but I also think that let's say that you go and let's say you take a different approach where you take a narrow network and then you go and you beat down the providers right so you're saying i'm going to bring you business but i'm going to beat your rates down but you don't solve their collection problem in the context of a a, a high deductible health plan
1: are we talking primary, still have primary care or
0: yeah primary and specialty okay, so in okay. the in the DPC space i know some guys are going back saying you know and that's a capitated model usually Mm -hmm. you know, from an employer. So it's like they're, so they're going, okay, you know, you were at 45 bucks last year. I need you at 40 bucks this year. And I'm like, well, how do you deliver comprehensive care if you're going to reduce the PEPM rate that they need to take care of your people? Right. So any, any kind of mechanism that's not sensitive to the fact that you do need providers and the providers need to be engaged like the other stakeholders do, and they need to be rewarded for exemplary care. So you can do that through a number of ways. One is through shifting market share, not just market share of patients that don't pay, that's that's not a that's a collection problem, right? So Mm -hmm. if what I've done is say, say I've moved market share five percentage points to you because your practice wants to participate in a you know say a value-based arrangement, but my plan design is still HDHP and the nature of your services are that you will spawn $1,000 plus in charges for the services that you render, and you're collecting 15 cents on the dollar. All I've done is, is shifted market share to you of unprofitable right. patients that can't pay. What I'm saying is you need to be sensitive to the collection problem and the plight of the providers. I'm not saying that we, we cater to any stakeholder, but I'm saying that I'm pretty sure if I'm an employer, I want providers that are capable they can take care of my patients, help them stay healthy and well. So that's a function of primary care whether it's DPC or, you know, whatever mm-hmm. the model is. It's also specialty care. And then it's also providing something to them that makes you attractive as a plan sponsor or as a TPA. Because what I want is I want the preeminent docs and I want them to be paid appropriately and fairly and, and where I'm gonna save money is eliminating unnecessary care. I'm gonna take out the administrative headache and all the EOBs and the lag on the money that drives up pricing. And I'm gonna help the consumer do the right thing because the plan sponsor is saying, if we do the right thing, I will help you. And so it helps all these stakeholders have a better relationship, number one, And we've seen it lead to lower spend, not necessarily lower profitability on the part of the providers. And then the plan sponsor. So if, you know, in my business, so it's a SaaS-based business, let's say I could drop a million dollars of spend out of my, at a multiple of 15, that's 15, $15 million of market cap that I just got by not spending it on healthcare, on wasteful, unnecessary you know, overly priced care that may or may not lead to good quality.
1: Well, and and I, I guess to to emphasize that is whether it's a primary care doctor's office or a large hospital, they they, they all are business owners, and so you're right. Yep. You're you're saying, hey, look, let's approach this in a way that helps solve a problem for you. In your case, and and I've heard the statistic of anywhere to twenty five to thirty five percent of potential revenue is just debt that they're, they're trying yep. to collect. And so yep. al- alleviating that problem, alleviating that challenge, it, it, you're right. It, it essentially gives them a raise either because they need less people or less, re- less resources to essentially get paid. So.
0: Yeah. And, and the, and the co- the administrative costs, you know, continue to go up. Mm-hmm. And some of that is, I've been reading some where now people are kind of reconsidering, you know, high deductible health plans, whether they've been an effective, because the, of the plan design or other reasons, it's put people under duress, which is an unintended consequence. But you know, I've, I know employers where they have employees making $40,000 a year and their out-of-pocket max is six grand.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Like 15% of their annual gross income is their exposure to a healthcare event. I mean, they're self-funded. They don't know it, it's crazy I mean eventually it's it's gonna break and I think that's what we're seeing in the industry is what's interesting is we keep saying it right we keep saying oh we can't do this oh we can't do this and every year we continue to kind of march down this trajectory as people try to innovate and that's why you know I'm very fond of apostrophe because Cheryl and I and I knew Julia before Cheryl came you know with apostrophe, and I do a lot of work in Denver. With the Business Coalition and other organizations out there, and I applaud them for what they're doing. I think it's a, I think it's an amazing model that empowers the consumer. It empowers the plan sponsor. It, it can work collaboratively with the providers and bring them together as a convener to say, "Guys, we can make this work for every everybody that's interested." And it's not shoving content at a consumer saying you need to make the right decision. Or frankly, it's not just cutting a check to a provider and saying come sue me and then asking the employee to stand in the middle and go into collection while this goes to litigation that's not really a very comfortable feeling you know i would expect right so kind of draconian
1: yeah so for the for the listeners of this podcast primarily focused for Mm c-suite pps of hr Benefits Mm -hmm. managers. I want to ask a question around: if if a smaller employer wanted to work with you, what would you tell them? Mm -hmm.
0: I would say, absolutely. So the reason that we, one of the reasons that we that we're taking this neighborhood concept and standing them up in all these markets nationally, is that it's our belief that the small and mid market employers have a huge opportunity to come together and. Have the ability to achieve the same value that larger employers can, but heretofore we've not been able to galvanize the small, the smaller and mid-market employers together to do group purchasing. And I'm saying I can actually take that role and provide a mechanism to them that, at no load, no load being there's no PEPM for them to access it. They can they can access it through their advisor and broker relationships or their TPAs, and if they use it, they pay a nominal transactional fee, but their net savings is significant, and that's that's kind of the heartbeat of America. Like that's where we all mm-hmm. live. You know, Quantros is a small company. We have 120 employees.
2: Wow.
0: Our healthcare costs are going up unbelievably, based on you know two to three claims a year, and so it's hitting everybody. And so while we While we will work with a variety of organizations, our focus is really on small and mid-market employers or municipalities that need to get more out of their healthcare benefit spend and they can do it. It is achievable in a way that's not disruptive, that's not tumultuous, that people can see as a benefit, not as a negative or not restrictive, and they can opt in or they can opt out. It depends on what they want to do. So, I would say you should be hopeful that we can solve this problem in a way that helps them come together as, you know, a small group of employers potentially and have impact on their on their spend.
1: Yeah, and quality. And you know what, you and and uh, I've had uh, interviews with Cheryl Kelland with Dave Chase as well and similar echoes of saying if mid-market, so smaller to mid-market sized employers, if they realize the influence that they could have in the cost of health care, that it could be profound in local communities in terms of the, the magnitude of change. It's just a matter of uh, creating the awareness of the Renaissance movement or whatever you, want to, whatever you want to call it. It's adding momentum and fuel to that fire.
0: Yeah. And, and so Bob Smith, a guy, he's the uh, executive director of the the Colorado business group on health. Mm-hmm. So he's also been the, the president of school board. And his whole goal is like, we cannot pay our teachers a wage that's competitive because of our healthcare costs. Wow. And that is, that is exactly where we are going. Like that is exactly where we are going. So we've got teachers, bus drivers, employees, engineers, that are overexposed, that are not—they've not been empowered. Business owners uh, have a hard time galvanizing themselves together to group purchase, and then when they do, their relative size to a hospital system or a carrier is still not significant. And I'll give you an example. So I live in Greenville. Okay, mm-hmm. one of the large employers here is Michelin, and they have maybe 8,000 employees, so let's say somewhere in the neighborhood of that would be what 20,000 lives maybe, say give or take. So 20,000 lives. Do you do you really think that if they stand up to Blue Cross of South Carolina and say, you need to tier your network that Blue Cross is going to cave? I, I don't think they will because 8,000 lives is not enough. Now, if you had 100,000 lives, then I think people are going to take notice. Well, in this community, when you get, when you brought together all the small to mid-market employers, you could easily pull together 50, 75, 100,000 lives in the Greenville Spartanburg MSA and say, we want, we want to work with you in a more innovative way. This is going on with the Peak Alliance in, in Colorado. It's a community that's got, reached out to the hospital and said, we want to work collaboratively with you. This can completely be done. The challenge that I've seen is, and I've worked with business coalitions for many years, the coalitions are great as a convener. The problem is everybody has their own ASO relationship mm-hmm. and for various reasons. Um, Everybody has different benefits design. When I I was participating with some of the meetings with the Health Transformation Alliance, and in those meetings, you had large organizations that were coming together to wield their clout. And although at the end of the day, some of the ideas were inflexible and made it very difficult for the organizations to kind of band together. So you have these companies that are between these two oligopolies. So you have the provider oligopoly and you have the the carrier oligopolies, and you're, you're fighting a battle on two fronts, and I don't think that's a battle that you can win. If you do something that works with the providers, as we've already discussed, I think we can, we can provide some advantages to them. With the carriers, I think what we can provide is a way for an employer to keep their ASO relationship, to optimize it in a way that doesn't denigrate or diminish the value that the carrier brings or the TPA if that's what they want and and provide that um, solution that is based purely on quality and price that is known to the stakeholders. So it's known to the provider. They know what they're going to collect 100% up front. It's known to the consumer. They know exactly what they're going to pay. It's known to the plan sponsor. And we can compare what the relative value is. So now we've kind of illuminated things that have been opaque. And now you can be the arbiter of whether you're getting the value that you really want or not and how you want to adjust that based on what your needs are.
1: So Shane, I'm, I'm at a loss for words because that was a mouthful, but definitely a, a lot to absorb. As, we, as I was preparing for this conversation, it was really more around what I expected you to say was more around where the data company that does that we feed a lot of engines, whether it's the hospital yes. side, the physician side, TPAs, we provide, the, we provide the, the back office support so that the clinicians can help direct traffic and all of that. Yeah. I, I didn't realize that in terms of a neighborhood, and by neighborhood, you're, you're meaning a collection of specialists that meet quality standards that are all in when it comes to the philosophical and reimbursement standards you're talking about. This is the end of this episode of Solving Healthcare. We thank you so much for listening. And be on the lookout for the next one when we talk about Mr. Wolverton's neighborhood. I think you'll see with a combination of this podcast and the next one, how Quantros can help you and your employees get the best care at the lowest possible cost. If you like this episode, please rate it and also provide your comments. If you would like to know how this service or others could fit within your organization, or if you'd like to sign up for future podcasts and news updates, please go to www.solvinghealthcare.net and click on contact.